If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with the top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alex Von Tobel, and this week, I'm excited for you to meet Anat Gez, co-founder and CEO of Papaya Global, the global payroll platform. Anot is a leading expert in global payroll and global workforce management. She co-founded Papaya Global after seeing the technology gap in global payroll. The company combines her twin passions, technology and global HR, to start a revolution in global payroll management. Papaya's innovative software provides a total workforce solution, allowing companies to manage all of their global people, payroll and payment operations through a single dashboard. Since starting Papaya in 2016, the company has scaled to work with over 700 companies worldwide and with $3 billion in total payroll under management. And with that, let's welcome Anot. Hi, Anot. Excited to have you. Let's start with the basics. In your own words, what is Papaya Global? Papaya is a global workforce management platform. It's really kind of the platform to assure that you can pay, onboard, and process payroll uh, globally, all in a very, very easy process. Uh, So we take away all of the compliance concerns and all of kind of the manual processes and so on, and make it super easy to manage global workforce for uh, large-scale, basically, organizations. Can you go back to those early days? What was the aha moment that you had to say, I'm going to go build this business? Where did that come from? My history with Papaya is a bit different than, I mean, normally kind of founders' stories because I actually had two services business in the domain beforehand. So I had two services companies, one in Israel, one in China, and and afterwards expanded to APAC. So I knew the pain that I'm solving very, very, very well when we started Papaya. And actually, for me, kind of the decision point of going and and building Papaya and and transforming everything that I knew and, and on the services side into a product is where I saw the rise of uh, global HRS and payroll companies in the U.S. And this is the moment for me personally that I said, okay, if this service is needed in the U.S., it's definitely needed on the global scale because the pain is much bigger. I mean, the uh, ability to manage the data, to understand the compliance and so on, there is always a lot of frustrations in the process from all parties because you just don't know what you don't know when you are far away from the country um, and it's very hard to to eventually manage it remotely. But, but I think that from this point on, when we decided that we know what we are building and we had a very big convictions, what happened is that we had very hard time to convince the market that this solution is really needed. So I think that we had two very different kind of paths. One of them was a substantial growth with clients that were super excited. 
we saw clients crying when we kind of introduced them papaya and the way that we reduce pressure from their table, the way that we take manual processes that they hate to do and they have to do month over month. Um, and they had like tons of relief. They were super happy. I mean, that just somebody is thinking about how to make their life easier on the ongoing process. But from the other hand, I mean, if I'm looking on kind of the, the investors uh, questioning if this is a real need. Can you walk us through product expansion and how you thought about each of those subsequent developments? I knew what I wanted to build. I mean, for the kind of the whole picture from day one. And then I had, uh, when we started designing the product with uh, Ruben and Offer, my co-founders, they were the one kind of grounding me and telling me, okay, I mean, this is great that you want to, to do the everything end-to-end, but now choose what is important, like the very basic thing that will make the difference. And I think there, it, it was an interesting kind of journey because we had in mind a few things that we thought that those are the right kind of items or processes that we need to start with. But when we started customer kind of uh, initial discovery, uh, we actually realized that the pain, the ongoing pain, if we need to solve one thing for them, this is on the other side. So we thought that eventually kind of the processing will be the area that we need to focus on. But when we were looking at them, they said, okay, we can handle processing already. The thing is that we need better control. We need better visibility. So eventually when we started we, we eventually kind of shift from the actual operation to start with providing visibility and kind of the consolidation of the data and then went back to the cycle. Can you walk us through what a core buyer looks like and what their experience is with Papaya? When we built Papaya, we were kind of looking on mid-market and we thought that Wherever you are in the journey between being a small company to a, a big company, this is where you have the biggest pain point because you are not big enough to use kind of a enterprise software that are eventually designed for a very large organization, but then you need to already kind of start and, and have automate all of your processes. During this journey, we actually realized that global payroll is such a complex problem that as you grow in the organization, the problem is growing with you and it's not really solving in any stage. So, I mean, this is the only area almost in the organization that the problem is actually getting bigger and you don't have good enough tools to, to change it. I think it's really kind of what we decided to do in Papaya is really invest the best R&D resources to, to make things different. So, I mean, taking all of those specific pains that nobody really wanted to solve and invest heavily. And I think that the biggest decision that we did on the very early days is to actually look on the payroll side, not on as an HR, HCM kind of process, but purely financial process. Because this is where kind of you are shifting your mind from, I have to be super accurate, this is a financial kind of company, then, I mean, maybe HR approach of this needs to, to reflect a workflow. I mean, the data needs to, to arrive to the right place, but you don't have kind of the standards that you have on the financial side. I want to go to COVID and discuss a little bit about how COVID changed your business. Walk us through what went through your head in those early days and then give us a sense of what it accelerated for you. Early 2016, we, we were really struggling to get the markets, the, the, the investors' convictions. So we really did our first serious A round. It was at the time quite massive A round back in September 2019. So just a few months before COVID really hit. And this is kind of the stage where we were looking and kind of had the massive plans for 2020 um, because this is the first kind of uh, year that we could really kind of think through and, and hire the team that we needed and kind of plan everything ahead. And then 
all of a sudden, like mid-January, we have a board meeting and everyone is starting to speak about COVID. And a month later, I mean, kind of the motion in the room or, I mean, let's put everything on freeze. Let's not hire people. And I decided that I'm not listening to them. Honestly, I decided that uh, we are continuing as planned because, I mean, we saw that in reality, I mean, the clients base just were continuing to grow. And I said, okay, I mean, if we get to a place where there is a disaster event and we need to change things, we will do it once we get there. But if I'm going to stop currently what we are building, I mean, the damage is going to be huge. I won't be able to recover this. And in reality, this is what we saw in COVID. I think that obviously we had our own internal challenge. How do we uh, hire? Because we wanted to hire massively during this period without seeing people, without meeting them. You know, I think for me, this, this was always kind of the hardest part because I'm a very big believer of meeting people in person. And I think also, I mean, hiring someone and kind of going through um, an onboarding in a new organization when you are at your home, Eventually, you don't feel connected to anything. It's very, it's, it's a very rough experience. I'm super proud, and I admire every single employee that managed to go through this experience and, and growing and, and has been growing with us since then. Eventually, companies are starting to think about their global needs uh, in a way that really kind of accelerate. And I think that there were two kind of acceleration there. First, I mean, all of a sudden, you had people that they couldn't fly. So you needed a better support on ground. So all of a sudden, if you had kind of regional hub, you would start and kind of separate them to local people in specific countries that can support. And on the business side, all of a sudden, we had our clients or prospect kind of approaching us and telling us, you remember you told us that payroll contingency is very, very important and that you need to digitalize everything. Now we need it because in reality, we don't, I mean, we don't have any confidence about how do we get the data? How do we have accessibility to the data? People are not responsive. You know, everyone was, I mean, was dealing with their own things in their countries. So, I mean, we saw massive acceleration also kind of in the use case that we build during this period but also kind of in the, in the ongoing needs of let's just hire people that can support the clients, can support time zones that are closer to kind of the region that they need to work at. What do you predict as you look forward in the next five to 10 years that seems really obvious to you that maybe isn't obvious to everybody else, but what, what's one or two of your predictions? I would say that I have a very big hope, okay? I mean, on, on the global workforce side that actually will come from a transformation in the government kind of approach, because I think that currently we like to think of ourselves as a global citizen, but everything that is related to taxes and compliance and so on is very, very local. So if you are changing, you're moving from one country to another, even from one state to another, I mean, everything changed in terms of, of taxes, in terms of compliance, in terms of regulation. And it's very hard. Eventually, I mean, this is the one thing, the biggest barrier to organizations but I would also say that I think that governments losing a lot of tax during those changes because they cannot follow, they cannot track. So the biggest hope, I would say, more than predictions, because, I mean, governments tend to move quite slowly, the whole kind of global taxation on the personal level will become kind of a unified process globally. So you would pay taxes globally, and then there will be an allocation per countries according to the time that you spent in a country, according to the relevancy of your income and so on. The second thing that I think that went to a place where currently it's very chaotic and I, I think it will sort itself. Five years ago with the gig economy and everyone was super kind of praising the fact that you can work for 
10 different jobs and, and, I mean, have your own kind of freedom. And then we are currently in a state where, I mean, government are trying to enforce everyone to be employed by employers. So, I mean, those kind of changes between personal freedom and, I mean, the employment method and how do you pay taxes, I mean, and who is really liable to taxes and so on. It's a very, very big thing, mainly when we are looking on kind of the millennials and their ability. They want to control their own time. They want to control their freedom of working and so on. So I predict that we will have a lot of changes there. I mean, I don't know exactly what the changes will be, but I think that eventually the power will go back to the individuals. So currently, government are trying to enforce employers to employ everyone. Uh, 1099 employees is, I mean, and, and I mean, contractors, uh, similar type of models globally is something that the majority of the countries are trying to eliminate currently. But I predict that eventually people are stronger than, than governments in, in their desire. And I still think that we will see a lot of global trends in terms of hiring. I predict that we will have much more global hubs and people will be able to navigate or, or, or to travel between them uh, while they work in the company. So, I mean, you'll have probably like regional hubs and you'll have the freedom of choice to choose wherever you want to work. There was a moment during COVID where it was like, we're all going to be remote forever, globally, the world is flat, you can hire people anywhere. Tell us a little bit of, of what you're seeing that makes you feel like it's not going to become a completely flat world. Why are you more hesitant on that? Because I think there are two sides here. First, it's very hard to create a bond and connections into people that are working remotely from different countries. And eventually, I mean, they just don't see their colleagues, you know, they don't have those small things that create a bond between people and really create culture. This is why also retention rates is becoming significantly lower during this period. This is why we see more and more cases of employees that nobody really knows if they work in the organization, if they work in, in, in uh, different organizations. But I also we see a lot of efficiency metrics going down because it's very hard. I mean, I always say that there are two sides of it. You need to accept working remotely, but you have a manager from the other side that needs also to accept to manage you remotely. And this means that he has a lot of obligations. I mean, he needs to wake up in the morning and assure that you have enough kind of bandwidth to fill your day, that you have answers to your questions. So, I mean, the relationship needs to be from both sides. And I think it's very hard. So I think what we are seeing here is that there was a lot of excitement of let's hire people wherever they are. Currently, it's changing. It's also changing due to the fact that employment laws are complex. So people went kind of hiring everyone, but then they realized that, oh, all of a sudden I need to pay 50% more on taxes than I budgeted. Or all of a sudden I understand that um, if I need to terminate a specific person in a specific country like Italy or France, I mean, this is actually becoming a very big liability to the organization. So I don't want to massively hire there if I don't have the certainty that I need these people. 2016, you decide global payroll, what was the hardest part of building it? And if somebody, if another founder was going to try to go build something in payroll, what advice would you give them? So we invested tons of time in the first two years to learn every single country, to build a compliance engine, to build the data specifically per country, and not to try and make assumptions because assumptions are the worst thing in payroll. You are working with very, very accurate data. And this is why payroll is very complex eventually kind of domain because Every single country make their own rules. They can change it wherever they want. But you need to really collect the information and then you need to kind of find the differences and respect them, but also try to unify the things that can be unified. 
And I think that the one thing that I don't like in this industry, and I see it quite a lot around it, is that people are trying to make it or to kind of market it as a super easy, I mean, painless process. No, I mean, it's like paying taxes. I mean, I don't think that the government is trying to uh, to rebrand taxes like super easy, painless process, because in reality, everybody knows that it's complicated. So, I mean, you need to respect local compliance. I mean, I think compliance needs to be your best friend in the kind of the journey of the product market fit. And you need to assure that you are not making any shortcuts in terms of understanding processes. Any other like hard part? Was there something that you guys got wrong or was there a challenge that you had overcome that was really painful? I'm sure there were many, but one that really stands out in the last five years. The first thing that we went completely wrong is we said, okay, I mean, let's focus on a monthly cycle. This is good enough. The majority of the world countries are paying uh, employees on, on a monthly basis. Then over time, we realize that this is actually an assumption that took us to kind of a wrong direction because, okay, then you have US-based employees and you cannot just, I mean, pay them on a monthly cycle. It's not working. You need to start supporting weekly and bi-monthly and, and a lot of different cycles. We had the same with Latin countries and so on. So we needed to actually go back in the product and say, this assumption is assumption that we cannot work. I mean, we need to change it from the ground. We need to be much more flexible about the pay cycles and adapted country, country per country and not just take an assumption that one cycle will fit all, which is much easier for us in terms of designing and so on. So we had a lot of those kind of moments where we, we were progressing and then we went back. I mean, we had some of assumptions in terms of kind of payroll details and how you collect information. And then, I mean, during those years also GDPR took place and a lot of the privacy kind of processes that you you had, I mean, needed to change from ground because all of a sudden kind of sharing information, you needed to do it in a very, very specific way. And obviously payroll data is very specific. So I think it it was never, I mean, we always knew what we were, we were building. We never pivoted along the way, but we constantly change things that we build how did you think about building your customer base? How quickly did you think about building it, knowing that you obviously had to be perfect um, as much as humanly possible? So I think it's a great question because in reality, you know, you start and obviously I remember that one of uh, our very first clients was a small startup, has been acquired by, I think, General Electric at the time. And General Electric actually uh, kind of approached us and said, listen, I mean, we are happy to continue working with you on, on the same business that you have with our client, but our payment terms are like 180 days and you need to have this and this insurances and so on. And we were just looking on the contract and said, we can never comply to this. So I think that, I mean, in reality, you always need to be assured that you are always aiming to serve the clients in the level that is a bit higher than the level that you are currently, but not five levels ahead. Because, I mean, you need to have some correlation. I mean, I cannot, if I will invest $1 million a year in insurances to accommodate one client, it's not going to be a good decision to the business on the early days because I don't have enough kind of clients to support this, this cost and allocations of cost. So we were always looking of, eventually kind of grading the clients and assuring that we meet the clients that we know that we'll feel comfortable with the stage that we are, with the requirements that they have and so on, but always looking above their head. So, I mean, if we started with kind of mid-market clients, we were always looking on enterprise clients. And I remember that we won a very big contract, a very big RFP in the very early days. My investors never thought that we are going to win this 
we were very surprised as well, but we asked them, why did you choose us? I mean, you could choose like companies that are in the business for 30 years that has much more kind of the requirements, the, the entry-level requirements, I mean, were much more obviously firm with them than they have with us. And they told us because you are the most innovator kind of company in the room, everyone else is more of the same and you bring a lot of innovation to the table. So I think that you also need to understand and kind of aim to clients that are looking for the things that you are bringing. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. I want to transition to you. And I always love to start by asking the question, which is, was there something that happened or something that you attribute growing up that your parents did or that your family did that you attribute to helping you be so successful? Papaya is my first child and I have three other child that came <laughs> after we, we co-founded Papaya. I have, Papaya is six and a half years old and I have five and a half years old, three years old and almost uh, two years old uh, uh, kids at home. So I think that the one thing that when I started, I was all my, when I just realized that I'm pregnant the first time, I was panicked. I thought that this is kind of the end of the world for the business. We just raised our very early seed round. I felt very, very bad. And I felt that I'm in a place where I need to kind of apologize for my investors that they invested in me. And now I'm just going to ruin their investment. And I think that the one thing I learned along the way with having kids, taking some time for maternity leave, but also having a lot of kind of challenges, uh, I mean, on, on the personal side, is always focus. And I think this is kind of the very, very important lesson that eventually you need to learn. And the other thing that I think was great for me, and I strongly recommend for every founder, but it's a hard task. Every time that I was about to leave to maternity leave, I needed to kind of hand over a lot of responsibility that I had, and I was personally kind of leading to the team members. So I always did kind of organization recovery plan. What happens if a nut is not available for the next three months, which never happened in reality, but it's a good exercise to assure that you hand over all of your liabilities, all of your responsibilities. And then every time that I came back or every time after I handed over, I actually had more time. So it kind of forced me to be much more structured in things that I'm building. I think that this is the one thing that entrepreneurs definitely don't want. They don't want to build processes. They, I mean, you know, we, we like to, to, to build ideas and concepts and to develop them, not necessarily build organization, but you need to have this balance. So it forced me to build organization. It was actually a very good practice. You've talked a lot about your strategy of imagining the worst case scenario whenever you're dealing with a really tough situation and that being something that helps you get through it. Tell us more about that. So this is really kind of my own personal tactic. I'm very good in analyzing problems, but the way that I'm doing it is really taking the worst case scenario of something and saying, okay, I mean, obviously, I mean, you, you constantly deal with issues, small problems, big problems, but I mean, if you are kind of breaking them, to the worst case scenario and trying to live in this moment. So really, I mean, 
for example, I had this scenario where we couldn't raise funds. I mean, I was on, on my second kind of uh, pregnancy and I felt terribly bad because I was thinking that eventually, I mean, I'm currently in a place where I'm really jeopardizing the organization. We, we already had about 60 employees at the time um, due to a personal decision that I had. And I was taking this very hard moment with myself and breaking it down to the details. I said, okay, what do I need to do in order to assure that in the worst case scenario, we don't have funding any longer. I'm I'm just kind of, I, I just gave birth. So obviously I, I'm not really available for kind of investors calls and it takes time and so on. What do we do? Just build it from there and kind of assure that you have a very concrete plan. It's not a pleasant plan, right? Because it means that you, you're going to send some people home. It means that, I mean, you, you're going to ask from some employees maybe to work a few months without getting paid and so on. But it gives you the confidence that you have a plan in place. And actually, I mean, once you're doing it, I think it's much easier to kind of look on those scenarios and say, this is the worst case scenario. I mean, you have the best case scenario, but you're probably going to land somewhere in the middle. It's not that bad. So if you can cope with your worst case scenario and, and feel it and kind of break it to the details, everything for aside this, I mean, it's okay. I mean, you feel that you can handle this. You've been incredibly open about the challenges of building a business while also juggling children. How have you managed that? Give us all, for every working parent out there, any advice? So somebody taught me once, I mean, that you start a day with a triangle kind. You have yourself, you have your family, and you have your career. And you need to choose two every single day that's going to be your main focus. I mean, because three will not work. So you need to choose, I mean, what will be the focus of your day between those three things and eventually kind of stick up to that. And I think that the biggest concept that, I mean, the world was trying to implement when you had these working parents and so on is that you can have it all, right? So you can't have it all. I mean, you, it's always about giving up things. I don't even think that kind of the term of a perfect mother or perfect parents, I mean, really kind of, of, of exist in reality. But it's really giving up your also your regrets and kind of just the echoes that you hear around. And I feel, I mean, for me, I know that my kids are super proud of Papaya. They know that, you know, I'm investing most of my time at the day in the business. I mean, in many times, this is eventually, I mean, a choice that I made instead of just spending some time with them. But I think that although, I mean, they might be disappointed, they learn about priorities. They learn about kind of a passion in life and so on. So... I think that the worst thing that we can do is do one thing and always feel regrets that we are not doing other things. So when we are dropping the regrets, I think everything is makes things much easier. Are there any other tips or tricks that you use to calm you down, to keep you sane, to help regulate, again, everything that's being thrown at you? What do you do to stay focused? It's not something that I manage to do on the day-to-day because sometimes I just wake up to the day and it's already chaotic. But I try to have like a list of five things every single morning. I mean, like in my head of that I'm going to complete today. So kind of have like a list of five items that I know that will be done along the day, regardless how the day is going to evolve, you know, tons of meetings, tons of phone calls and so on. And normally, I mean, I achieve between three to five, which is good. But I think that just having like a very, very focused list makes me assure that some of the things that I think that are very, very critical to the business or critical, I mean, things that I need to do happens during the day. The second thing that I started to do recently, and I find it very, very useful to the organization, is set a list of 10 big items that we want to achieve in the next month. 
and share it with the organization, have a lot of honors to small tasks. So it's not like a big item. I mean, it's not like we big item line. It's really like breaking it to tasks and assuring that people feel that they have the ownership. It's specifically short time period to, to accomplish. So it's not like quarterly kind of KPI, but really kind of few weeks that you need to finish this. And then people feel that we constantly move forward. And we move forward with the day-to-day, but we also constantly move forward with the strategy. I'm going to move to a quick fire round. Literally, I want the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, a favorite book that you've read that you come back to, it can be any type of book. It's going to be The Cult of We. I think on the business side and kind of taking and analyzing and understanding like founder stories and, and motivation, uh, investor stories and motivation, businesses that are growing amazingly, but then all of the things that eventually, you know, can break along the way. I think it's a great book. I read it already twice and or, or heard it already twice and, and um, really recommend it. What's your favorite interview question to ask people to really understand who they are? Normally, what's their hobbies? I think that, I mean, this is something that um, is very important to understand what type of person you are. First, I think that hobbies says a lot about you. I mean, you know, I mean, are you a competitive person? Are you, a, I mean, are you, are you doing things that are on the solo mode or a group mode and so on? And I think that is also kind of something that people are feel very proud of. I mean, and I mean, you, you have few base in life, you have family, you have work, and then you have your hobbies. And that's kind of how you bring yourself. What was the biggest pinch me moment to date for Papaya where you literally couldn't believe something so magical happened? What was it? When we won an RFP that nobody believed that we, we will win, like a very, very significant client. I mean, Fortune 100 clients that honestly, I mean, the odds were against us. I mean, we were almost kind of uh, submitting it just for the exercise of submitting it. And when they told us that they're going to choose Papaya, it was like, wow, amazing. Last question. Fast forward two years. Uh, how many days a week do you think the world is in an office? I think currently everyone aligns to two to three days. I think that three days will probably be the magic number that people will lend to because I think that everybody understands that they need to see their colleagues. I mean, the personal interactions is super important. And in reality, the majority of the people need to work with people around them. I think that it makes you a better, more creative and, and much more engaged. So I think that three is the magic number that we will end. I love that. Um, Enoch, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Everybody out there, if you want to learn more, check out papayaglobal.com. And you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Enoch, we're rooting for you. You You're such an inspiration for so many of us. And just congratulations on on juggling all of, I will actually say, it does look like you have it all. Um, And (laughs) I need to work very, very hard to make that happen. So we're rooting for you. Thank you very much.